The advice and opinions expressed by the host of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. The Center for Autism and Related Disorders advises working with a board-certified behavior analyst who has experience with autism before starting any intensive behavioral intervention. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Good morning and welcome to Let's Talk Autism with Shannon and Nancy. Nancy, I'm so excited to be here with you today. I'm so excited to be with you as well, Shannon. And uh, it's, a, it's a great day and uh, we're going to be with you live for the next hour and we're going to be talking about autism always from a 360 degree perspective. Good morning, Amanda. We have people who are already starting to write in that they're here joining us. So let's talk a little bit about how you can interact with us, Nancy, because yes. there are more ways than ever uh, for you guys to interact. And then we're going to get right to our guest uh, this morning. So, uh, and then we'll do our news a little bit later on. Later? Okay. But, yeah. But um, so there are many different ways that you can be watching the show live right now on this Friday morning, the, the 6th of November, 2020. You can be watching us live on YouTube, on Periscope, on Facebook, and on Twitter, and also on our homepage, autism-live.com. But I will tell you that if you're watching live on YouTube, Periscope, Twitter, or Facebook, that if you just uh, write into us in, in the format of that place, we are able to see it on our screens in almost real time now. So uh, thrilled to have you join us in any of those ways. I do want to remind you that after the show ends, you know, we'll do it live and when it ends, it will still be available on all of those platforms. But additionally, later on today, it will podcast as a free download on many different sites, iTunes, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Ghana, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Audible, Deezer, and many, many more. If you're not finding it where you, good morning, Michelle. If you're not finding it where you like to watch and listen to your podcast, and by the way, you can have a choice of listening or watching, uh, let us know. We like to be on as many screens as possible. But I'm so excited to be here on this Friday morning with my good friend, Nancy Allspot Jackson. And um, we've got a great, great guest for you this morning. We enjoy on this show being able to bring this started with Nancy and I always had this dream of covering the research that happens in autism and trying to bring some sort of sense to it. But a I'm just, I'm going to speak for myself. A lot of it is over my head. I don't know how Absolutely. you feel, Nancy. Yeah, you need somebody to kind of break it down and translate and, and, it. Yeah, and over the years, we would see a headline that would say something. It would be like, you know, here's you know, this incendiary headline. And then Nancy and I would start reading the article and we would go, I don't think the article and the results of the study match the headline. Mm -hmm. And that was disturbing to us. 
but we a lot of times we, were, we needed like another uh, person who knew, you know, what was going on to explain to us what the study really revealed. And so we we're found her. we found her. Yes. In fact, we have a team of people, but more often than not, it's it's Leah Hirschfeld who joins us and she's joining us right now. She is from the research and development team at the Center for Autism and Related Disorders, and we're so thrilled to have her with us. Good morning, Leah. Good morning. I hope I can follow that introduction. <laughs> well, and, and I could go on and on because we've so enjoyed over the last year or so you joining us to sort of explain things to us. And I know a couple of weeks ago, we put a couple of things, well, a couple in the last couple of months, we put some things in your column and said, gave you assignments and said, go find out more about this. So what is, what are we hearing about today? Yeah. Um, so I, at first, let me say, I love when I get assignments, it takes the pressure off me. And then I know I'm actually addressing something that your, your audience really wants to hear. So anyone watching, anyone listening or watching later on, on all of those different formats that Shannon mentioned, um, write in, tell us what you want to hear about and we'll make sure we address it. Um, but today we're going to talk about the gut and microbiome. Um, and it's very exciting, very sexy, which is not something I thought I'd ever say about gut and microbiome, but it is. <laughs> um, and before I quickly get into that, I'll, I'll um, you know, Shannon already, Shannon and Nancy already kind of addressed who I am. But um, like they said, I'm Leah. I'm a research coordinator at the Center for Autism and Related Disorders. Um, I work on our research and development team. Um, and like Nan Nancy and Shannon already said, that that's a really cool team, um, if I say so ourselves. Um, we get to kind of make sure that we're addressing the best way to provide therapy with empirical research for our clients, for our caregivers. Um, and so we spend our day analyzing data, running research experiments, trying to parse together what all the research that's coming out is showing. Um, and I'm so excited that we get to also be on Autism Live to, to uh, talk about it. It's really cool. <laughs> so you say this is sexy research what makes it that um well so so there's you know i i, I think this is pretty wide in the research community but um you call research sexy when it's like hot and new and lots of money are being thrown around um so you know at one point sexy was like bilingual research um gut and microbiome is definitely sexy everyone kind of wants a part of it everyone thinks it's really exciting there is tons of money being thrown into it right now. Um, and that's really cool and exciting. You know, there's a lot of awareness going on that GI issues are a common complaint for autistic individuals. Um, and it's way more common than individuals with, that are typically developing. Um, so some researchers have said it's as much as 90% of autistic individuals have GI complaints. Um, others say, you know, two to three times more than typically developing peers. Um, and what that kind of points to is that there may be something interacting here between the gut and maybe the brain. And that's kind of maybe there's a solution where we address the genetics that cause gut issues and brain concerns. And we can help target some of those symptoms that, that are related to autism. Um, but at the moment, there's nothing definitive. Um, so understanding that GI dysfunction is where we're, we're getting at, but there's nothing here yet that's super definitive. And this is like a spoiler alert for everyone. Um, but that the complaints of GI distress has increased. So like I said, the fact that there's so much research out there saying there are GI issues is something that our families and our patients can potentially run with um, as we wait for all of the second research to come out. Um, so, you know, 
I'm trying to think of the best way to, to spiel, spiel this right now. Um, but, um, like I said, there's a lot of awareness for GI issues. Um, and if you're a caregiver or a parent or a patient trying to advocate for themselves, um, one of the things that you can make sure you do is go to your doctor and talk to them about any GI complaints you think you're, you have or your child has. Um, and really, you know, there are some folks who might push that off and say it's just a side effect of having an ASD diagnosis. That is, yeah, that's probably not um, the best way to resolve it. And we can really push to make sure that we're having some solutions um, and that we're addressing any GI concerns, right? So that, you know, you can there's over-the-counter medication, there's diet, there's exercise, there's uh, sleep, there's water. There's a lot of things that we can do to kind of address those GI concerns as we wait for the research to come out. Um, and we've seen that, you know, and, and I, I'll talk for myself when I have GI issues, I am a cranky mess. Like I am not pleasant. Um, and I, I, and I'm sure that is true with everyone who has GI issues. So if you're resolving your GI issues, your child, your, yourself, whoever may experience, um, behavioral solutions and better outcomes. Um, and that may lead to some additional outcomes of like being able to learn quicker, being able to really focus on your lessons, things like that. Um, so you really want to talk to your pediatricians, um, or your doctors and also talk to your ABA clinicians, you know, um, your ABA clinicians can absolutely help to make sure that, um, if like you, you think someone needs a better diet or more variety to help with GI complaints. Your ABA clinicians can absolutely help with food selectivity and things, with getting enough water, which making with with adding an exercise regime. All of those things, you know, between your doctor and your ABA clinician, you can help with those GI issues. Again, as we wait for the research, um, and another can do if they're interested. Um, so I'm going to throw in fecal transplants here. Um, also very exciting. A lot of people are, I think of it kind of the same vein as medical, uh, as marijuana right now, cannabis, you know, very exciting stuff, but very experimental. Um, one study talking about those headlines, Shannon, one study just came out a few months ago, I think that, um, showed some positive outcomes for fecal transplants, but there's a lot of, um, you know, you have to be a little hesitant here. It, those studies still need a lot of replication. Um, Though a lot of those studies are still in the infancy, so they don't necessarily have a control group, which means, you know, there's no comparison between the two groups. Um, and and there's also no clear indication of, like, how placebo effect might um, affect individuals. So for those watching, um, placebo effect is you think you're getting a treatment and so you feel better, regardless of if you're getting the treatment or not, knowing that you're getting something or thinking that you're getting will get a placebo effect and you'll feel better. Um so all those studies are really cool and exciting, but they're still really in their infancy. And I would I would caution anyone of either trying anything like that at home or or maybe even trying it with a doctor. What I would recommend is talk to your doctor, see if it's appropriate, and then see if you want to get into a clinical study. There's a lot of clinical studies out there that are working with fecal transplants. They definitely need more more um, participants. You can look at clinicaltrials.gov. You can research, uh, reach out to research at centerforautism.com. We'll help you navigate that that world. Um, 
and know your rights as a research participant. Research is always voluntary. You can bow out at any time. There's negative, no negative consequences to you. Um, and you also have to have an informed consent. So you have to make sure that the researchers have to make sure that they provide you all of the information before you start a study. So you are very aware of your of, of everything going on. Um, so, you know, if you're interested in kind of working on that experimental stuff going on, I would highly recommend you work with clinical trials, talk to your doctor, talk to your ABA clinicians, um, talk to your clinicians and talk to your doctors about any GI issues that you see with your child or anyone else. They, uh, there is a prevalence for GI issues with autistic individuals. Um, and people are getting much more aware of that, which is cool, um, because you're not just going to hopefully get pushed off. And if you do, we can give you research um, that really says, no, no, like this is a serious concern. Um, and you may see results. Um, you probably are not going to see recovery results necessarily from solving GI issues. Um, but you might see behavioral outcomes or quality of life outcomes. People might sleep better. People might feel better. Um, and then... The other last thing I wanted to plug was, um, Shannon, I know I think last time when we were talking about this, you had asked about um, a giant grant that I think maybe Autism, yes. yeah, it got. Exactly. Um, speaks. It was Autism Speaks. Autism yes. Speaks. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you asked me to follow up, so I did. Um, and it looks like we don't have results yet. Um, it looks like that data is still being analyzed. And a lot of that data, unfortunately, gets pushed because of everything that happened with COVID. Um, yeah. So there is some delay in, in looking at it and it's a lot of data. Um, and this is true, I'm gonna say also about a lot of the research right now. So like I said, sexy, sexy research, you're gonna see a lot of headlines about million dollar grants, literally million dollar grants being yeah. thrown at this. Um, but they're being awarded this year, middle of last year, which unfortunately means we probably won't see research results for at least another year or two at the end of 2020. I would be shocked if we don't if we see something before mid-end 2021. Research just takes so long. And that's true, too, if you end up in a clinical trial. You might find out results for yourself, but you might not find out results for the group or see published results for at least a year or something like that. Um, but there is cool work going on, and I'm really excited about the future. Um, and... In the meantime, please talk to your, your doctors. Please talk to your ABA clinicians. Get everyone on board and say, you know, I see them clutching their stomach a lot. Or, you know, they're on the toilet for a really long time trying to have a bowel movement. Like, there are other activities that we can do as we wait to kind of figure out what that genetic connection might be between ASD and the gut biome. Okay, so let me see if I can... If, if I encapsulate this, that what we what we have found out is that the prevalence of it, it's very prevalent, but we don't know why. And all the money being spent, we don't have the results back. But here's what's weird for me is that I think it's the, the worst of both possible worlds, because I think a lot of us have experienced going to the doctor and saying my kid has gut issues and they dismiss it and say that it is autism. And it's nowhere on the criteria for autism. And, and yet, so we're saying it's very prevalent, but then they say, oh, well, that's just autism. And it isn't. They should still be treating the gut issues. So we just have to be more diligent is what you're telling us, that we've got to fight for people to listen to us. And if we're, if, I would say if we're at a doctor where they're not listening to us, it's time to get a new doctor. And I know that's hard. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's spot on. Um, 
there are the prevalence seems to be huge that that individuals are having GI and your doctor should not just push you off and say, oh, it's fine. Just a symptom of ASD. There's things that people can do. You can absolutely work on resolving the GI issues and God forbid it's anything more serious, but you know, you can work on making sure you have enough water, have a variety of diet, have exercise, whatever it is. And your doctor should be supporting you in that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Well, you know, I'm glad that we got this update. We in fact had had Nancy, I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago, we had on the the lead doctor who was doing the fecal transplant study out of Arizona or New Mexico, yeah. I want to say, uh-huh. and it was they were just in the early stages, but um, it was very exciting because fecal transplant is not something that's new. Okay. I I, um, I mean, people have been doing it even within their insurance companies. Adults have been doing it. I think what was a little bit different um, for the fecal transplant study in Arizona, if I remember correctly, because I I know a person. I know someone, they used to work on the show that their, their mother was someone who had been doing fecal transplants for over a decade for adults. Um, and, uh, and so she was like, oh yeah, that's a very, it's not quite mainstream, but even your insurance was, you know, if you, if you were an adult and were having a certain kind of GI issue, they would do it, but it was a transplant that was given rectally. And what they were doing in Arizona that was I think really controversial and that was grossing us out was that they were giving it orally. Yes. And, and that was the thing that we were like, Oh my goodness, I can't, (laughs) I I must look away. Um, But they were like, they were doing all these things to separate out what it was that they wanted to, to give the transplant to. And then they were giving it in this like milkshake container Mm -hmm. and I couldn't even look. I just, uh, but you no, know, the, not, I mean, it sounds gross, but this, the, oh. the, um, stool sample is, um, put through a process where it does not. Yeah. Like and, and it's sanitized and, it's but it's the, yeah. but it's the enzymes or the, I don't know what that's in it that is preserved that they, and, and I guess, as I recall, cause it's been like two years ago, that part of the issue was that doing it rectally it would only recolonize the good bacteria in the lower part of the colon. And they really wanted to get in the small intestine of our kids because they were seeing that that made a much better outcome. So I find it interesting, Nancy, I, you know, this is a very sensitive subject, but, and I don't know that Wyatt would appreciate us talking about this, nor would my son, but did Wyatt have gastrointestinal issues? Yes, he did until he was put on the gluten-free, dairy-free diet. And if he consumes dairy, he has a lot of intestinal issues. Yeah. And, and same thing with my child. He would not appreciate me talking about this, but um, I would say that my entire family is, you know, we have a very interesting um, gastrointestinal history. So, um, and, but he's super sensitive and even, you know, at this point he's still gluten-free, casein-free. And it was last year at this time that he said, can we do every once in a while, he'll say, can we do a dairy challenge, mom? And we, we did a dairy challenge. He ate cheese for two days and reasonable amounts, not like, you know, tons of it. And I said, you can eat it for two days. And at the end of the first day, he said to me, can we stop? I don't want to do it. I, it tasted so good, but I can't do this. I'm in so much pain. I don't feel good. I don't want to feel this way ever again in my life. So, you know, um, 
that was so, so powerful to me right. that, you know, he was, so he was 16 at the time and he was like, I can't, I don't want to do this, mom. I can't. Um, and I was like, well, you know, then yes, let's stop it. So I can't imagine, you know, that's what he was saying when he was 16 and verbal, he wasn't able to tell me when he was three and I was giving him macaroni and cheese. Right. Right. Um, but I was seeing behavior that I was like, what's happening. Mm -hmm. I can't, I, we can't live our lives this way. You know, what am I supposed to do? And when we took him off of the gluten and the, the milk, we saw a different child, a different child. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I will say that I don't think that that solved all of his gastrointestinal issues. And I think that people need to be aware of that, that it isn't just diet. There are other things as well. But um, the diet certainly helped with a lot of different things. And you said that too previously, haven't you, Nancy? Yes, the diet helped with behaviors as well. And yeah. includes in language and other things that, um, you know, we saw was pretty apparent to the, to the naked eye. So, um, and we have a viewer who's what, who's been watching and I know had checked in the other day and said that their child went dairy free. And she said so far the no dairy has been absolutely uh, awesome. And somebody else said, I can tell when my son has a yeast issue, he smells different, behavior is off. I, you know, and I think um, diet can can be a very important, important thing. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I used to make me so mad in the early days of our intervention when um, people would say diet has nothing to do with it. And, and I would just be so frustrated. I would go, well, then by all means, drink, drink this beer and tell me how well you can perform afterwards in, in your daily, you know, routines. Let's see if it changes it at all. Of course, what you put in your stomach or don't put in your stomach makes a difference. But I always think back to, um, I'm allergic to milk and I'm allergic to wheat. And I remember, I want to say it was 1984, uh, that Phil Donahue, this is how old I am, uh, but you can search it up because it's available on YouTube. You guys, Phil Donahue had on his show it was considered very unethical at the time, but it was, it changed my mind. Uh, he had a group of kids that were in his studio and you could see them playing and they were interacting and they were just, you know, kids and everything was fine. But he knew uh, because the parents had told them that these kids were kids who were reactive to milk. I don't know, allergy or whatever, but they were reactive to milk. So they gave all the kids some milk and went to a commercial break and came back and it was bedlam. The kids were screaming and yelling and crying and, and you know, that kind of crying when they mm -hmm. like, they're so out of control. And it was, it was eight minutes later. Mm -hmm. And I remember, and he said, ladies and gentlemen, this is what milk does to some kids. And I remember going, holy business, you know, and again, highly unethical. We don't give things to children that we know are going to make them reactive, but he changed my mind that day. And I, you know, I, I, whenever somebody says to me, Oh, I don't think it can make that big of a difference. I'm like, take a look. It's there. The video is there. Somebody else is same here. My son is GFCF and he has helped him with his language as well as behavior, completely different kid. And I feel the need to say disclaimer, it's not all kids. I also know people who have done the gluten-free, casein-free diet and did not see any behavior change, did wow. not see, you know, their child's gastrointestinal stuff better, did not see any, you know, 
And I think that's been part of the problem when trying to get science um, and you folks, you researchers, to see because they'll take 10 kids and they'll mm-hmm. put them on the gluten-free, casein-free diet. And, you know, maybe six of them don't have a big difference. And so, and, and four of them do, and they come back and they go, well, statistically, you know, it's, it's not likely, you know, it, it's, mm-hmm. it's been crazy making for those of us who have seen a difference in our kids. Right. Um, and, and to that point too, it's hard then to make a recommendation where, okay, everyone on, who's autistic should go on gluten-free not necessarily but it could absolutely make a difference um and i'll make a plug there i don't i don't know necessarily but i know you know there are um allergy tests and things that you can do that if that's maybe why there are gi issues and it'll show up on an allergy test absolutely your doctor can run that and i don't think that that should be such a big hurdle to ask for an allergy test if you have um insurance, you can certainly ask for an allergy test. It's something that's pretty run of the mill. The issue is going to be that there are different types of allergy tests. And there are some, there's the, Nancy, you might know there's the AGA and the the AGE. And, you know, some of them are more definitive than others, but I will say that we did get my son tested and he did not come back Mm. as someone who was reactive to milk or to gluten. Right. But because something they're going to show a reaction to in an allergy test. But I will say it showed us other things that he was allergic to, which yeah. helped us, right? Hi. And and because because of my history um, of being allergic to wheat and to dairy, we made the decision to put him on the GFC. Because I, at that point, we were waiting for ABA to start, and I was like, "What can I do? Mm-hmm. I, what like what's in my arsenal? What can I possibly do to be helping my child?" Right. And and you know, and so that we said, "Well, let's just try it." Um, it's, it's not going to hurt him. I, I know that people worry about, will your child get enough calcium? But, you know, my child was eating green leafy vegetables. I think if your child won't eat green leafy vegetables, you have to look at what your calcium sources are and make sure that your child's getting enough calcium. Calcium is important for growing bones, but I have a child who's six foot two. Um, and he has been gluten-free, casein-free since he was three. It is, it is doable. I want everybody to know that it is doable. Shannon, how did you find out you were uh, gluten and casein intolerant? Well, you know what? I was uh, dairy um, allergic to dairy as a child. As a baby, uh-huh. they diagnosed me as being allergic to milk. And mm-hmm. so my mother had me on soy formula when mm-hmm. I was a baby. And then later as a child, I, I would eat sandwiches, you know, I eat Wonder Bread and I um, drank milk, but I constantly had all these allergy issues and um, a lot of health problems as a result of it. And so my mother finally, they said, you know, you should probably take her to an allergist. So I was probably 12 Mm -hmm. when they officially tested me. Now, the irony of this was that my brother, uh, my younger brother, constantly had allergy issues and ended up in an oxygen tent twice a year. So they had done all the allergy testing on him, but it never occurred to them to test me as his sister. So 12 years old, they did the allergy testing and said, Oh, you're allergic to milk. And, um, and I don't think they tested me for wheat. Then I discovered it later on. There was a, there was a book, Dr. Berger, um, who was a big allergist in New York city, put out a series of books 
uh, about how many people have hidden allergies and that you can be just slightly allergic to something, but it can throw you off at different times of the year. And that's exactly what I had at that point and still have that in the spring and in the fall, when things are, you know, mold and things are flourishing, I struggle. And that if the tighter I am on my allergy diet during those times, the healthier I am. And if I'm not tight on my allergy diet, I lose it. So I did his elimination diet mm. and discovered that I was horribly reactive to wheat um, and then subsequently have been tested for that. But in the, but I, there were years I went back to eating milk and it was two years ago that I did another allergy panel and came back allergic to milk, allergic to wheat. I'm allergic to beef and pork, but I'm, you know, now I'm vegan, but I was vegetarian for years. So I don't eat those. But the other thing that was a ginormous bummer is I'm allergic to bananas. And I, I expect everyone to cry for me. That is a horrible, horrible thing. Um, but I wouldn't have known that. And I was eating bananas and I was eating yogurt and not feeling well. I do think it's important that we do get our kids tested for allergies. When, when we had Jem tested, we found out that he was allergic to almonds and all, um, any kind of a nut allergy, it's really important that you be aware of those because those can get bad fast. So I, I am a big fan of getting tested. And I'll throw in, you know, Shannon, you mentioned that you, your son luckily loves leafy greens and, and so calcium was not a problem. But that's, again, where you can talk to your ABA clinicians. Um, there is tons of research and they have tons of strategies to make sure that um, food selectivity if that's your concern as a parent or a caregiver, you can we can work on that um, and really make sure. And I've seen it work. Like kids who used to be picky now eat basically everything. They're better eaters than I am. Um, so that's something we can definitely, you know, talk to your ABA clinician. That's something we can definitely work on if that's a concern, especially if that impacts GI. There's so many behavioral implications. So that that's really cool. Well, one of the things that I've heard often is uh, both in the autism community and outside the autism community is if there's something that you or your child are eating, that it's your main thing. Like if all your child will eat is nachos that, it, it, you know, with the, the corn things and the, the cheese over the top, it is more likely whatever you're addicted to is more likely to be the thing that you were having an allergy. Right. Yes. Right? I that. And that makes it hard. Why crave dairy and carbohydrates when he was allergic yeah. to when he oh. had reactions to glutamation, but that's oh. what, all he craved. And in the beginning of doing the diet, we just used replacement foods, cheese. It was non-dairy cheese, non-dairy uh, tortillas. I mean, gluten-free tortillas, things like mm -hmm. that. So we were still, he was still craving and thinking he was getting the actual food. Yeah. And listen, if, you know, the things that I fantasize about being able to eat are like French bread and butter pecan ice cream. And mm -hmm. to me, you know, that's death on a stick. But I want, <laughs> I want to say that, you know, what happens when you have a child, a lot of fear that the parents have and they go, well, my child only eats chicken nuggets and French fries. So I'm not going to be able to do your gluten-free casein-free thing. My child will cease to exist. And, and none of us are advocating starving your child, right? But a lot of people have discovered that when you, when you put a gluten-free nugget in, and I've got a great gluten-free nugget for you, when you put those in, then all of a sudden your child will eat a leafy green because you're breaking that addiction and they, they can taste other things and they like them. So, um, but there, if, if you have here, it's Ralph's, but in a lot of the world, it's Kroger. 
there it Purdue sells a gluten-free chicken strip nugget that's in your deli section, like not by the lunch meat. It, they're organic now. They're gluten-free. They are chicken nuggets. And my little nieces who are not gluten-reactive, who are not on a GFCF diet, that is their favorite nugget now because they've had them at Aunt Shannon's house. So I'm telling you, they are, they are better than your gluten-infused chicken nuggets, and they're organic. Yeah, so we get the dinosaur chicken, the Wilshire Farms dinosaur chicken. But I got to be honest, those are super expensive. Yeah. And these Purdue ones are less, they're still expensive, let's be honest, but they're not as expensive as some of the other ones. Because sometimes you get those little boxes of the gluten-free chicken nuggets and it's like five portions and it's $10. Ah! Uh, and at our grocery stores, carry the, these Purdue um the chicken nuggets. I might ask Jim to go get one out of the refrigerator to show you, but um, every once in a while they put them on sale and we always stock up on them. So get me talking about food ladies and it's all over. Uh, so people are writing in saying same here. My son is GF. Let me go. Uh, my son is GF CF. I, I got to find it over here. And it has helped with language as well as behavior. Completely different kids. Someone else says, wish my husband would try dairy gluten-free would help him. You know, at one point we had two of our therapists on our team decided to go gluten-free casein free for 30 days with Jem as, as solidarity. And guess what? Both of them felt better. One of them discovered by the end of the month that they were um, celiac. And said to me, you may have just saved my life. I, I can't I can't tell you how much different I feel. Uh, somebody wants to know, what's this Nemechek protocol all these parents are doing? I haven't even Googled it because it sounds sort of far out. Um, and, uh, and somebody else said, that's like Bell Evans. You get three in the box. Yes. So I am not as versed in the Nemechek protocol, but we can have somebody to come on and talk about it. But it's pretty intense. Did you do the Nemechek protocol, Nancy? No, we did not. Okay, so we'll get somebody. Was, yeah, I knew why it was Cation um, allergic because of as a baby he had an allergy to formula, and we had to go on nutramigen because he colic. Generally, if your child colics terribly, that's a pretty sure sign that they have a dairy intolerance. Interesting, interesting. I, you know, I was one of those militant breastfeeders that. Um, I, I was breastfeeding Jem and we did not allow him to have cow's milk until he was uh, over a year. And then, it, and I didn't, and I did not allow him to have wheat either because I was afraid of him being allergic. And at that time they were saying that if you keep food out of their diet, like peanut butter, when, when Jem was a baby, I was not allowed to have peanut butter while I was pregnant. And he was not allowed to have peanut butter as a baby because of the allergies in our family. At other times, they've said, no, feed it to them when they're a baby so that they'll build up a tolerance to it. I don't know what they're saying right now, but we kept anything we thought he might be allergic to later on, we kept out of his diet for the first year. And I will say this, he was typically developing for the first year. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then we did start giving him milk and uh, wheat. And that was when we started to see a difference. I don't think that that caused it, but I will say that we started to notice it then. Um, so anyway, I think there was another comment that it was, so Nemechek protocol, we will, I will have somebody come on and talk about the Nemechek protocol cause it's pretty intense. Um, and I, and I have not done it, although I know people who have done it, but I, I, 
I know a lot of people who looked at it and said, I, I'm not going to be able to do this. So there you go. Uh, well, we've, I've talked over you so much, uh, <laughs> Leah. So what, what, is there anything you want to end on with this? Cause then we will do our in the news, but, uh, last thoughts maybe. No, I mean, I think this is all great and you never talk over me. It's, it's always, it's a pleasure, um, to be here. Um, just that, you know, the takeaway, there are more GI issues in autistic individuals than the typically developing population. Your physician should not just say, oh, it's fine. It's ASD. That's just happens. There are solutions. Um, and you might see results behaviorally, language, whatnot. Um, when you make folks feel better with, you know, when tummy issues, they suck. They just yeah. really hurt. Um, yeah. and, and so, and, and if you're interested in fecal transplants, if you're interested in anything that's kind of on the edge, experimental, um, please just make sure you're doing it responsibly. Um, clinicaltrials.gov is a great uh, option to look at clinical studies. Then you're both, you get to potentially do a fecal transplant and you get to help science. Woo. Yeah. And sometimes we get paid double woo. Um, and, and, you know, if that's something you're interested in, reach out to research at centerforautism.com. We can help you transverse that world. Um, if there's any kind of questions you'd like to see as we um, come on, we come on every month. Um, I think December at the moment is probably going to be Karen Nolte, who's our head of research. Um, so don't miss that. She's wonderful. Um, she is my boss, so I have to say that, but she is actually wonderful. But she's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think um, I think we're going to be talking about bullying um, and instances of bullying, especially maybe cyberbullying right now because of um, remote school and things. Um, but if there's anything else you'd like us to talk about or if we get a lot of people asking for one thing, we might move that to January, whatnot. So um, just write in, let us know. Um, and Shannon, Nancy, thank you so much for having me. It is such a thank pleasure. You. It's thank really lovely you. to be here. <laughs> It saves our bacon all the time to have you yeah. here. So, so wonderful to have you. All right. You take care. Awesome. Thanks, y'all. Have a great yeah. weekend. You too. Bye-bye. Okay. So that was sort of fun. Uh, and I'm seeing, we, you know, we need to do like a whole show just on diet. But um, we've got some news for you guys this morning. And uh, one of the things that we were just adding before we came live onto the air is that we, we had covered this briefly, and I don't remember whether we did it while you were here, Nancy, but there is a young woman who was running for the state Senate in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, she it, uh, identifies herself as being both bisexual and being on the autism spectrum and was running for the state Senate. And we are hearing this morning that she is the projected winner um, in the state of Pennsylvania. Her name is Jessica Benham. And of course, we're going to be reaching out to her to see if she would uh, grace us with her presence uh -huh. on the show. And we want to say congratulations and very exciting that for the first time um, in the state Senate in Pennsylvania, there will be someone who identifies themselves as being on the autism spectrum. Um, I think that's really remarkable and that it's a young wow. woman. And yeah, I know everybody's saying, wow, and yay, we're very excited for Jessica Benham and for the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, okay, so then we've got- how many, I wonder how many uh, members of Congress are on the autism spectrum. Well, and you know, we don't have anybody who identifies as being on the autism spectrum, which doesn't mean that they aren't, right? right. right. Um, which is always a very interesting thing, right? Uh, but I, I, I think this is just the beginning for us. 
Um, her demonstrating that she not only is on the autism spectrum, but that she was identifying herself very openly as being bisexual in Pennsylvania um, and that she won. I, I think it's going to allow more people to be more open mm -hmm. about who they are at their core. And that if, you know, if part of how people identify themselves as being on the autism spectrum, you know, I, I do think it's going to open the door for more people to say, yes, I identify as being on the autism spectrum and that it's not something to be hidden. I think, in fact, it's something to to be trumpeted because I certainly um, am thrilled that she is going to be a voice representing, which kind of goes hand in hand with the second story that we're going to do today. But um, I, I guess the third, because that was the first story. So uh, I'm, on my top of my pile is that uh, there is, even amidst all of this COVID madness, there is about to be, and I thought of you and Wyatt when I saw this, Nancy, because right. there, there's an art showcase that's going to be happening at Utah Valley University. It's actually, it's actually already started. Okay, uh, yes. November 5th. You're right. It's the sixth. You're, right. You're absolutely right. And yeah. I love it. It's, it's called the Super Spectrum Showcase and Soiree. And this is an annual event. Some of the art, and I, I don't think we have the ability to show you some of the art right now, but I thought some of the art was just beautiful, Nancy, absolutely didn't you? Absolutely beautiful, the examples they showed. And, and it's, it's all ages. It's, a, it's from age, they have an artist that's five. Um, and then it goes on up. So, um. and and we want to say that this is an event. Um, it, it, first of all, it's being held at a very special uh, location, the Melissa Nelson Center for Autism, which is at Utah Valley University. We were covering this center when they were first getting ready to break ground, that they were going to build this new university center. And it is at Utah Valley University. And you can find out more information about the center and the, the art show by going to uvu.edu. Um, but previously, it was intended to be in person and has been held in person before. But because of the pandemic, it's now online. Mm -hmm. And and while this is horrible and it's such a bummer, what it means is that all of you can go to it, right. which is a wonderful, wonderful blessing. So you would want to go to uvu.edu slash autism and then slash. And, and I have to say, Nancy, I would love to see Wyatt's work in this next year. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, this is one of the colleges that my son is applying to. We have dear friends who teach at this university and I'm very familiar with this university. And um, so I can foresee a future where next year, uh, Jem is a student at this college and you're visiting because Wyatt has artwork in this mm. art show. Wouldn't that be nice? That would be lovely. Um, I, I would be very excited about it. So I'm thrilled, 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 and want to encourage people to check this out and support it. Uh, and again, if you want more information about that, go to uvu.edu slash autism, and then another slash. You probably just could put uvu autism and it'll come up. Okay, uh, moving on. We were talking about having a voice and why it's important to have a voice in different places. I thought this was a really interesting article 
um, Nancy, about how important it is to have black scientists and black researchers yeah. in roles having to do with autism research. Right. Um, it's got a spectrum news, which yeah. has very interesting articles. I love them. I think that they're doing a really good job over there. I will say that this particular article is written by Desiree Jones, who's a graduate student at University of Texas at Dallas, along with David Mandel, who's the professor of psychiatry and pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and I found it really interesting um, as they were talking about, in light of last week, if you guys recall, we were doing a study about the fact that genetically they just started to look at the genome of individuals whose descent is from Africa because so much of the human genome that's been mapped has been from people who are European and that this whole 23andMe and how, like I just did this for the first time, I just did my 23andMe and that predominantly it's people who are of European descent who have been doing it. So most of the data that they've been collecting is about that. And the, they just did the first big um, research of a genome that is based of, that originates in Africa and found over 4 million new variants that point to autism. Right. Or, I mean, I just, for a week, I've just been like, how could, like we have to stop systemic uh, racism everywhere. And I'm going to say that, you know, I am as blind as a person can be and that I need to be educated constantly because I don't see what I don't see. But I found this very eye-opening, this article about how important it was because if we don't have researchers who will be looking for this, we're going to miss it. Right. Um, so I, and I loved that it, it's, first of all, it outlines what the issue is, what they're asking for. And then it gives all of us very specific things that we need to do. And I found this, um, that section of the article really important about creating inclusive environments at every workplace, not just in research and about how important it is that when you see microaggressions and when you see things um, to support and not always expect for it to be your teammates who are, uh, and I found this to be true, and they were saying this This is very true for the autism community, but it's also true for our, our both people who are of color on the spectrum and off the spectrum, that mm -hmm. we need to start uh, living this in everything that we do. And I just, I found it very inspirational and very enlightening and um, great, great article. It is uh, a great article. And unless we can make some of these changes, um, we're going to see Black children underrepresented in autism research. Well, we, and they already are, and they're underdiagnosed, and the right. studies show clearly we all know what it's what it's like what when we went to the pediatrician and we stood there and said i think something is going on here and that we were poo-pooed yeah they're and they're diagnosed and they're diagnosed at a much later age as well yes but my point is is that you and i know we stood there and we were poo-pooed and right. so i and i go well autism moms are poo-pooed well they're telling us in their research that if you or I had darker skin, we would have been poo-pooed longer and more stringently. 
Right. And that to me makes me nuts. Yeah. Like we have to be able to be in solidarity on this and say, you know, this is not okay um, on any level. And, and if people can't get as, uh, you know, excited about the idea of turning this around um, from a humanitarian standpoint, because I don't know about you, but it, I, it, it churns my stomach. I remember when Jen was diagnosed and, and I realized how we were going to get help. Mm-hmm. and and that we were going to be able to start services and that the state of California was going to be able to pay for it. And I had been praying for something, 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 help me, help me, help me, help me. And I felt so lost. And then when I saw clearly that we had a path towards him being better, all I could think was, are you kidding me? The only reason why I get this is because I live in the state of California. Mm-hmm. That can't be right. How can that be? There's a mom in Kansas who feels exactly the way I do and she doesn't get it. She doesn't get to have that prayer answered just because of where she lives. Right. We'll add on to that, you know, and, and for me, it wasn't because I, I live in the state of California. It wasn't about money, but for a lot of people, it was about money before California was covering it. Mm-hmm. You, if you didn't have enough money, your kid couldn't be treated. But now add into that. We've always known if you couldn't speak English, you were less likely to get it. And I think we've known for a long time that if you're, if the, the hue of the, the melatonin in your skin was different than as a mom, you weren't going to get what your child needed. We just have to stop it. And it does mean having people in the roles that can bring it up. And you and I know this, um, Nancy, like we are, we are women and we have been in the room when men were talking about things and they were going to do something a certain way. But in our lifetime, there was a woman, a woman in the room and the woman raised her hand and said, I don't think you're looking at it. You know, I think you want to look at it this way. Now, sometimes those women were mansplained, but sometimes women dug in and said, you, we have a different point of view. We're seeing it differently than you are. And it's an important point of view. We cannot leave anybody behind. Um, not in autism. It's, it's the right thing to do morally. It's the right t- thing to do for humanity, but it's also the right thing to do for all of our kids. If you don't want to know what the whole picture of autism is, we're going to miss the boat. You want to help your children. This is the right way to go. So I loved this article. I thought it was really great. Sometime I, I, I'd love to have this young woman on the show too, Desiree Jones. Um, anyway, um, I guess, was that all three stories? I think I missed a story. Oh, I, I think we lost Nancy. Um, I overtalked her and she left. Um, okay, our last story is about how um, women moms on the autism spectrum uh, may be passing down the gene more than dads. Um, and I think the takeaway for me of this article was more about the fact that we're, and we're seeing this trend that sometimes um, one or more parent after their child gets diagnosed and it's being explained to them what autism is. I think all parents go, wait a second, I do that. Wait a second, I have that. Or wait a second, my husband has that. And I think it's really important for us to, I think for a lot of time we were saying things like, well, you know, we're all, somewhere on the spectrum. If you look at all of the different criteria for autism, we're hoping Nancy joins us back. Uh, but if you look at all the criteria for autism, um, you know, everybody has something on the criteria. And I think that that's really, really true. Uh, it's when 
it's really important that we all acknowledge that um, you don't get a, a diagnosis of ASD, autism spectrum disorder, unless you have enough of the things and those things have to be something that disrupts your life significantly to the point where you need support. That's really when you get the diagnosis of autism spectrum. I'm back. We moved on to the last story and I was just saying the takeaway for me of the last story um, is that, oh, don't you find that a lot of times when people get their child diagnosed, them, that um, they start to go, well, wait a second, but that you're now you're describing me or now you're describing my spouse. And right. I think it's important to talk about it and look at it. And even to the point of we're seeing more and more, especially moms, but sometimes dads who uh-huh. find themselves going to see if they qualify for a diagnosis. Right. And I, for one, I want to be really careful at this point and not have, I, I find I'm a little sensitive when people assume that they're on the autism spectrum um, because I think it, I think it negates a little bit the disorder part of it that I do think that we're all a little bit on the spectrum and that we all need a little bit of support and things, but it doesn't disrupt our life greatly. And, right. and I do I do think that we need to be cognizant of the difference, right? And so sometimes people will say, well, I haven't gone to get a diagnosis. I'm self-diagnosing. I think that I'm on the autism spectrum because I have X, Y, and Z. Um, And I would encourage people um, to go slowly with that role. But I, I think that we all need to acknowledge where we're having difficulties and if you need help, seek out and get it. And if that means getting a diagnosis, then by, by all means. Right. Um, but I don't think it's unusual. There is an expression in the autism community that puppies don't have kittens. Right. Right. And, you know, our children, um, you know, and, and we can argue nature versus nurture that sometimes, um, our, our kids pick up our habits, right. Of dealing with things. And sometimes our kids genetically are predisposed to different things. Jim and I definitely see in each other where the, the ways in which we, uh, we, neither one of us qualifies for a diagnosis, but, um, but you know, I have different traits. Like I'm, you know, I see that I have sensory issues, right. And he sees that I have sensory issues, but not to a degree that I, can get a diagnosis of sensory processing disorder. Um, you know, uh, although I've had guests who tell me I should go and get officially tested for that, but, <laughs> but, and I, you know, maybe I will someday, but, um, I think that, uh, and maybe you can speak to this, Nancy, that, you know, I think you've been very open about the fact that you and your wonderful husband Reed. Uh, adopted Wyatt, that he was a blessing that came to you in a different way, Uh, no less meaningful, but you don't share genetic material, but he is your child and he has grown up in your household and he is uniquely Wyatt because, um, you know, he's your child. I have never, when I met Wyatt, he was, I, I don't know how old he was, but he was making himself a cup of coffee and I've never, I've never forgotten that because I didn't know any other kid that age that was making themselves a cup of coffee, uh-huh. but that is so Wyatt and that is so your household. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so anyway, I, I, I want to encourage people to be looking at that, not overreacting. And if you feel that you need a diagnosis or to have it checked, 
you know, it's, it's more and more possible for adults to do that. It's not quite as difficult as it used to be. But I do think it's interesting that it's, uh, that they're seeing genetically that, um, that it might be more from the mom than from the dad. Right. Um, right. I, I don't know. I always get a little sensitive about that, Nancy. Um, you know, I, I remember thinking very distinctly because of some people in my family, as Jem was starting to be diagnosed, I remember thinking, okay, this is from my genes, not from my husband's mm -hmm. and feeling like it was my quote unquote fault. Right. I've, I've been able to relanguage in that in my head. So that thought seems so foreign to me now, but I know that a lot of people, um, get hung up in that. Right. Um, you know, like whose fault is it? Um, and, and why, and there's a part in Christina Adams book, a real boy, which I absolutely love. And it talks about, uh, something happens and she finds out something statistically like this, that it's more likely to come from the mom. And her ex-husband said to her, well, yeah, I always figured he got it from you. Uh -huh. And it was devastating to her in that right. moment. And I can remember reading that and just sobbing because I thought, oh, I don't, I don't want it to be my fault. I really don't look at it that way at all anymore. I don't think of it as... I really have, you know, our, our, our topic this week, Nancy was acceptance versus contentment. Right. And I, and I really do believe that I have come to complete acceptance that my child, this was the path that we were meant to be on. And I don't ever think about, well, what if my child had not been diagnosed with autism? Uh -huh. That that's gone from the table for me. I've, I've, I, I accept it. This was right. our path. This was the only way that it ever could be. And so there is nothing, there's nothing wrong. There's no, no fault. There's no blame. Um, I'm not always in contentment with things and those things that I work on, but I fully, and it's so interesting how you can be one day, not an acceptance and the next day be an acceptance. Yeah, it is a, it's a process. Yeah. And, and it's, I liken it <clears throat> to when, when my father died and I was 30 years old and I'd never had anybody that close to me pass away before. And I couldn't get my head wrapped around it. I just couldn't, I just, I wanted to argue it. I would write things about, well, but you know, if he lived longer and it was this whole, I just, I couldn't accept that that was it, that my father had died and there was no more. I just couldn't get my head wrapped around it. And then a day came where it, you know, it washed over me and I realized he's gone He's never going to be able to be back the way that he was. And it's time to, to accept that. I don't have to like it, but I can't argue it anymore. There's nothing to argue. It happened. I can't go back. And then I was able to figure out how I could live the rest of my life. Because mm -hmm. when you're not in acceptance of something, and it was the same thing for Jem. There were a lot of days that I, my whole day was, how can I get back to the day, the place, the time when whatever happened, happened and change it? Oh, I know. I was consumed in the beginning with that thought. Yeah. That if I could go back and, and blaming myself. Yes. And I, and I just couldn't, you know, I couldn't <clears throat> make any peace with it because I, you know, and, and I see this in other areas of my life where there's time when I'm like, I just want to do over. Can right. we just rewind the tape? I want to go back. I want to do it differently. I want to look at it differently. And it isn't until I can look at something and go, okay, I, I can't argue that anymore. That, that piece of it happened. 
Um, and I have to be out of the argument of that, be in the acceptance of that. And now I can figure out what to do about it, which that is that acceptance versus contentment piece for mm -hmm. me. I'm, I, I, I always feel a little strangled, like ah, I can't be an acceptance. And then I remind myself, acceptance doesn't mean you're happy with it. No. Um, I, I'm allowed to not be in contentment, but I know the quicker I can get to acceptance, the better I'm going to be and the more effective I'm going to be in doing whatever it is that I'm going to do. Right. Um, so anyway, um, so I, I hear you guys, uh, you guys have been saying that this is a little bit for you as well. We are officially out of time, um, but I want to say that we are back next week. We've got some great guests for you. In fact, um, I, I've not told Nancy, but um, next week on Let's Talk Autism with Shannon and Nancy, I cannot, why can I not remember her last name? It's Kristen from the Autism Society of America. She was with us two years ago, Nancy. Lovely, lo lovely young woman. And I don't mm -hmm. have her last name in front of me, but she's going to be with us next week um, right. on this show. Okay. So it's a big week. Uh, we're really looking forward to it. If you missed the, um, the town hall on conservatorship that we did last night, we do have the recording and we're going to be sharing that next week as well. So people will be able to tune in and check that out. So Nancy, so good to spend this time with you. So good to spend it uh, and, with you as well, Shannon. And uh, we, we look forward to being back here on yes. Monday. Until then, give your kiddos a hug from me. And yourselves a hug from me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye for now. <laughs>